0: Many of you know that I do like planning out sermon series very far in advance. And when I do that, I sometimes shoot myself in the foot because in the back of my mind, I get excited for other parts of the Bible that I would love to go through behind the pulpit. So I put those down in the margins of my preaching schedule and have to come to it when I come to it. It didn't take too long for me to be in Woodland to know that in many ways, uh, shapes, sizes, and forms, our congregation is made up of people who have prodigals, prodigal sons, daughters, in-laws, brothers, sisters, parents, aunts and uncles, cousins, I didn't name cousins. And so the sermon schedule, though, just fills up, and leading up to January 2016, I like to say I got the hair-brained idea, but I think the Holy Spirit laid on my heart to take us through the book of Mark, and so we started that in January of 2016, and the whole time on the back burner is I need to preach through the prodigal son. Finally, I'm in Mark 14 a few weeks ago, and I feel like the Lord reminded me again and told me it's time to preach on that. So I came over to Luke 15, that's the only place where the prodigal son is, and felt like, wow, I need to preach through all of Luke 15. And so we're finally now, something that's been building for a long time in the back of my mind and my heart. I want you to see in this chapter that Luke seems to be utilizing the number two a lot. There seems to be two of everything. Luke 15, 1-2 tells us that tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus. Two groups of people. Likewise, it's Pharisees and scribes that approach Jesus, two groups of people. And the debate is about two groups of people, the sinful and the religious. Luke 15, 1-10 tells us two parables with similar meanings, particularly the two points, one being a diligent searching, whether it be a lost sheep or a lost coin, and then a second point, the joy of finding that lost sheep or lost coin. So we enter into this last parable, which at first glance... Some of you know that it was in medieval times who sectioned the Bible into chapters, and we feel like they dropped the ball. Because you go to Luke 16, there is a second parable. However, there's not only one prodigal son in this parable, but there are two prodigals. And as we come to this chapter, two parables, excuse me. So we come to this chapter, again, two parables with two points each. A searching for and saving sinners, and we have two types of sinners, though, in this parable that Jesus is searching for, and it corresponds with the two groups of people in the debate, the sinful and the righteous, but both are prodigals. With all that being said, I couldn't help but preach this parable in two parts, (laughs) but we will focus on this story, the sinful prodigal, so stand with me, if you will, and let's read Luke chapter fifteen, verses eleven through twenty four. Says, And Jesus said there were there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as you would. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants Bring quickly the best robe And put it on him And put a ring on his hand And shoes on his feet And bring the fattened calf And kill it And let us eat and celebrate For this my son was dead And is alive again He was lost and is found And they began to celebrate Let's pray Father we love you And we thank you for your love for us That we see in this parable and if we're honest, a lot of us are going to come to this parable with open ears, perhaps for the wrong reasons, because we're looking for a magic formula to bring our prodigal home. Father, would you show us the truth of your scripture here? Show us the truth of your word and get out these distractions. Let us not approach your scriptures the wrong with the wrong motives. But instead, may we come to glorify your son, Jesus. Father, would you comfort us, encourage us, convict us, guide us. Would you get me out of the way and say what you desire? That is my sincere prayer, and I pray these things in the name and power and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As I go through the Bible, I feel that often the subtitles that our translators and editors give us in texts are helpful, but they are often limiting. They're helpful in that perhaps they jog our memories rather quickly about the story we're going to read, but I feel that they are limiting, as I often wish, that they would choose better subtitles or just leave them out. (laughs) Because as we come to the story of the prodigal son, I have two other titles that might better suit it. And that is the prodigal son's plural. But the best way, I think, to entitle this parable is the waiting father. Because Jesus opens this story, and the introduction of any story is very important. And it is probably the established frame of reference that, or the lens that most hearers or readers will view the story through. In fact, we know that some storytellers make use of this very fact to cause misdirection. They'll open a story on something that they want you to follow so that they can deceive you for the enjoyment of the story. But for Jesus... We see this story centers really on the father And he says There was a man who had two sons And the younger of them said to the father Father give me the share of property that is coming to me And he divided his property between them In the context of this parable Jesus is talking to Luke 15 3 tells us Pharisees and scribes And what was happening was that tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus and the religious people, the Pharisees and scribes, were upset that Jesus was receiving and dining with them. The first two parables that Jesus gave the Pharisees and scribes ended with the final notes of the joy that God finds in the repentance of sinners. Even in the first parable, Jesus kind of gave them an unspoken smack to the Pharisees and scribes. He says, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than ninety-nine righteous persons, like you, <coughs> who need no repentance. And so there's these first two stories, with simple stories, one of shepherding, one of searching for a coin. But this story, I wonder if it really caused these well-studied Jewish persons... ...to think about the first book of the law and two other sons... ...where the younger swindled some inheritance in an unrighteous manner. Jewish leadership had a huge problem with being caught up in their pedigree. If you know the book of Acts, you know that around chapter 10... ...it begins quite a narrative about the amazing reality it is... ...that Jesus the Messiah is literally for anyone and everyone... ...who would believe, Jewish and non-Jewish alike... What a big deal this was for Christian Jews To discern And Jesus is setting up a parable That sounds to me an awful lot like Jacob Who would become Israel We realize that Israel Is descended in some ways From a prodigal son named Jacob You know the story Jacob, you can read Genesis 27 In your own time to jog your memory more thoroughly But basically Isaac An old blind father Wanted to bless his eldest son A man named Esau With inheritance So kind of like our parable in Luke 15 Isaac sends Esau away And he says go and kill the best game you can find Let's have a feast And I will bless you Isaac's wife overhears the conversation She plays favorites Basically takes advantage of Isaac's age And blindness She dresses up Jacob to look like Esau Jacob comes in and receives the blessing Before Esau gets back And that culture, that's as good as signing the dotted line, and Jacob gets the inheritance, and then he has to flee in order to to avoid being murdered by his brother. And thus begins the long story of Jacob, who becomes Israel, and which the Jewish people are descendants of. And I can't help but wonder, if Jesus is not giving this parable with a very similar origin, a boy who cons his way into his inheritance and flees home, to remind his listeners... You pride yourselves on being descendants of Abraham But remember Abraham's grandson Whom you're named after Remember you are descendants from a prodigal son Now Jewish law says in Deuteronomy 21 verse 17 That of two boys The eldest would receive two thirds of the inheritance While the youngest would receive one third Very unusual for a healthy father With many years ahead of him to do this early But what was also disrespectful and unusual Was what the youngest Son did with it We read in verse 13 of our text Not many days later The younger son gathered all he had And took a journey into a far country And there he squandered his property And reckless living I want you to see here that this is not Simply an unfriendly, cold Or slightly unpleasant Transaction This is a family split If it were real life and not a parable You would expect harsh words bitter arguments, broken promises, and the like. Because the taking of one-third of his inheritance, this means that the part of the ranch and farm, the animals and cattle, the fields, goes with this boy. He's doing damage to the family business by selling it for cash so he can go out and waste it. Perhaps the father and the eldest son had plans, they were making long-term plans, but the son not only parts ways, What's in that day and age, it's very rare that you would trade, you would trade in your craft or your, what you're doing. But he is literally endangering and damaging the family business in a very real way. Their livelihood. New neighbors are moving in next to the father to farm lands what were once his own, but his son took his part of the inheritance, sold it, and left to waste his money on something else. With your prodigal family member, perhaps you know this familiar hurt all too well. You know that though your family member has made their own choices because they're grown people, it does not negate the fact that their choices are having real consequences on other people, whether they admit it or acknowledge it or not. may not be inheritance, but their lifestyle choices are causing damage to them or their children or their parents or their siblings or even their sphere of acquaintances and friends. You've paid them money to never receive it back. You've came to their aid to not receive any gratitude. You had plans, or you thought of plans for their good, but they rejected those plans outright. You've wished only for their best, and see it's for their best, but in fact to their detriment, their harm, and their fall. They're only setting the stage for tragedy. You can see it, and everyone else can see it. And like this father you may often be in the dark, only left to wonder what they are doing. And though you're hurt by the actions that they've done, like King David over his son Absalom, you still love them. You want them to return home, but you're helpless to do anything about it. Jesus continues. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields and to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. As we keep in mind that this is a parable, we have to wonder about some of the particular symbols that Jesus might be using. Like it happened often to Israel, such as when Jacob's son Joseph was in Egypt, a severe famine happened in the land. The prodigal son. Sometimes famines were seen as God's judgment, sometimes not. No matter if God's judgment is being used here or not, note the Jewish prodigal solution to his famine problem. See, the problem that arises in the solution that this man does is actually spiritual in nature. For a Jewish man to take a job feeding pigs is an unclean and sinful job for a Jew. I was trying to think of a contemporary shock value for us. This is the only thing I can come up with. It would be as if, and this man began working as a waiter at a strip club. We would think, why is he doing that? What, what's wrong? That's wrong. Many of you, again, have prodigals. Similar things have happened. Whether God is the cause or not for their sudden lack of success, their loss in funds, their famine as it were, they still don't seek the Lord. They still don't wonder, have I made some wrong decisions? Did I dig myself in here? But rather, a famine arises, low on cash, lose their job, they get a divorce in the short end of the stick, they can't pay the bill, they get kicked out of the house. It's almost as if the door is plainly open to your heart and to your house. Come home. Couldn't be any more clearer to them. They decide to find a worldly correction to a spiritual problem. And the shock and awe for a Jewish man working with pigs or a prodigal Christian taking a job at a strip club begins to wear off, sadly, as we get desensitized to it, as the more decisions they make, the less they look like who they were. The less hope you find in the whole situation, the less surprised you are by their worldly decisions. Verse 16 says about our prodigal sinner, really couldn't give a worse picture of how far he's fallen into the Jewish man's eyes. Give me the pig's food. I'm so hungry. But no one gave him anything. All his non-believing associates at the pig farm could care less. And friends, perhaps you know this of your prodigal family member and their associates. This is perhaps what worries you the most, that a day might come when they are in dire straits and all the people that they've surrounded them with will not be there for them. But what happens for this prodigal? You see in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will read for you from an article that I came across. I can make it entirely available for you. I have copies right now. But It simply says at the beginning, when I was 19, I decided I'd be honest and stop saying I was a Christian. At first, I pretended that my reasoning was high minded and philosophical, but I really just wanted to drink gallons of cheap sangria and sleep around. Four years of this, and I was strung out, stupefied, and generally pretty low, especially when I was sober or alone. My parents, who are strong believers and who raised their kids well as any parents I'd ever seen, were broken hearted and baffled. I'm sure they were wondering why the child they tried to raise right was such a ridiculous screw-up now, but God was in control. One Tuesday morning before 8 o'clock, I went to the library to check my email. I had a message from a girl that I'd met a few weeks before, and her email mentioned a verse in Romans. I went and bought a beer and went back to where I was staying. I rolled a few cigarettes, cracked open my drink, and started reading Romans. I wanted to read the verse from the email... I wanted to to read the verse from the email, but I couldn't remember what it was. So I started at the beginning of the book. By the time I got to chapter 10, the beer was gone, the ashtray needed emptying, and I was a Christian. The best way I know how to describe what happened to me that morning is that God made it possible for me to love Jesus. When he makes this possible, and at the same time gives you a glimpse of the true wonder of Jesus, it is impossible to resist his call. Looking back on my years of rejecting Christ, I offer these suggestions to help you reach out to your wayward son so that they too would wake up to Christ's amazing power to save even the worst of us. And the first thing he says is point them to Christ. Your rebellious child's real problem is not drugs or sex or cigarettes or porn or laziness or crime or cussing or sloveness or homosexuality or being in a punk band. The real problem is that your child doesn't see Jesus clearly. The best thing you can do for rebellious children is to show them Christ. It won't be simple or immediate, but the sins in their life that distress you and destroy them will begin to disappear only when they see Jesus more as he actually is. The author goes on to give 11 more suggestions, and I would comment that the last suggestion he gives is also point them to Christ. Again, I can make the article available to you. For the man in the prodigal son story, note the simple fact that he was hungry. And his father had food. That's what encourages him back. Note in this article, it was the simple verse from the book of Romans in a subtle curiosity that this prodigal cracked open his Bible and began reading. I also want to take a line here for encouragement for many of you, particularly prodigal, with, with prodigal children. Note the line that this man says My parents who are strong believers And who raise their kids As well as any parents I've ever seen Do you see how from this prodigal's testimony That he does not blame his parents I've spoken with some of you And I hear where did we go wrong What sins did I do To lead my children astray I personally hope Pray Beg Every day by God's grace That Calvin and any other children that I have Will never go astray But I want to tell you, as unexperienced as I am in these matters right now, (laughs) particularly how to deal with prodigal children, but on the authority of biblical interpretation, though you are imperfect and sinful, the odds are, the ultimate, if not the most important, blame and cause of your prodigal children's waywardness is not for you to carry. How do I know that? Adam and Eve had literally the perfect parent. The story of the Bible is about God Seeking out his own prodigal children Adam and Eve Was made perfect By their own desire By our, all, by our desire We have all gone astray So it is with your children Does this mean that your prodigal children Will never blame you <laughs> I'm sure that in the midst of their rebellion They'll say you sheltered me too much Your religion is overbearing Your morals and values are too traditional You should progress and catch up with the rest of us Whatever lies spewing out of their mouths come from, like the rest of us, it's coming from a wicked and wayward heart in need of redemption. And you need to know this, too. You cannot offer redemption. You cannot save them. We read in our story, this boy says, I will arise and go to my father." And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You see in this plan of the prodigal sinner genuine repentance, genuine understanding that not only did this prodigal son sin against his earthly father, but against God himself. <clears throat> Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You cannot save your prodigal child or your prodigal children or your prodigal family member. You do not have what it takes to reach into the heart of that child, that person, And inclined them towards trust. Being rather young, I'm not approached for counseling (laughs) often. Okay. Except for Vince. (laughs) I should say, I do have talks about life and other subtle, and I do offer subtle advice, but for what I consider counseling, big issues where you're approached for the sole purpose of handling that issue. Those times are rare, and that's okay for me because I feel extremely unqualified. But the point that point was really made aware to me recently. I feel unqualified because my answer, oftentimes, for any situation seems very pithy and abstract, especially for non-believers. It seems probably rather impractical. The latest discussion I had, a person gave me a long list of faults, problems, complex situations which produced very problematic results. Yes, I'm being very vague. But I looked at this person who I know is an unbeliever, and most of the persons mentioned in his problem were unbelievers. And I said, it sounds like your situation needs redemption. There's only one redeemer, good enough, who offers the kind of redemption possible for your extremely complex situation with many different sinners Doing sins and others reacting with more sin Taking place This person kind of shrugged off the advice and said Well I know you're young But you know how it is You talk with people about problems And oftentimes they, they say something that you haven't thought of and That was just the point I'm sure I just said something that they hadn't thought of I know many of you and your prodigals I know it keeps you up at night I know it makes you wonder, worry and fret When will this end? Will it even end? Are they just going to never come back? I want you to relinquish your fears this day because someone else is watching and waiting to, for that sinner to come. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus describes again what I think the title of this parable should be, The Waiting Father. The Father is watching out for His Son, and from a long way off, what happens? His Father saw Him and felt compassion. This is the Father's heart on wayward prodigals. They are unsaved, or if you are unsaved, and if you are offending God, and if you're working against God, and if you're enjoying sin and not God, and if you feel like the odd one out, especially if you're in a community of what what are saints, and if you feel ostracized, and if these words condemn you instead of convict you, take heart. The Father sees you. And maybe you've been walking on the outskirts of the proverbial property, hesitant to come in, but the Father sees you, and his heart is compassionate. His heart is to forego integrity and social etiquette and to run out and embrace you. We see that the Father ran and embraced him and kissed him, a bunch of undignified, unmanly customs (laughs) for this Jewish man. Men do not pick up their robes and run. They surely wouldn't show this sort of emotion for that kind of son. They might meet them in the eye and say, do you want more cash? Is that why you are back? But Jesus loves you and loves your prodigal this way, sinner. How do I know that? Paul tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That word demonstrates could be a little misleading. It's God shows, God exhibits, God proves. God's love is composed of what's happening here, and that is His coming to die for us and the very sins, the very moments that we sin against Him. This is the undignified lifting up of the robe and running out to meet His Son. What has the Son done in this parable? He has offended Him, left Him, took all the money, damaged the family business, their livelihood. He's coming back merely with an empty stomach. What has the father done? Paid what he wanted, never sought to wish him ill in return. And in fact, when the son returns, he is so happy that he runs out from him. Friends, what have you and I and any other prodigal ever done? The son says to the father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. We all have, by our own designs, intentions, and actions, removed any worthiness to be counted among God's children. But the Father gives grace. We see Jesus use such rich theological and biblical language here in this parable. Jesus says about the Father, The Father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him.'" Bring a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet Bring the fattened calf and kill it And let us eat and celebrate For this my son was dead and is alive again He was lost and is found And they began to celebrate Clothed with a new robe Given a ring of authority over their land Killing a fattened calf These are all overwhelming pictures Throughout the Bible For what Jesus does for us on the cross Jesus clothes us in Righteousness all we've done is ever sin, but He just gives us a new identity, clean clothes. We're made clean. Paul says that in Christ that we are sons and daughters of God, recipients of the inheritance of the kingdom. We're all given rights. We're all given rings. When the fattened calf is killed, we look forward to the wedding supper of the Lamb, but we also rejoice in the Lamb that was slain for us. We were dead and lost, but in Christ we are alive and found. We take hope in our prodigals Because we must realize too That we were once prodigals And so as we come to the end of this message Perhaps you have listened with anxious ears What is it? What's the secret? When will my prodigal come home? I cannot tell you when But I can tell you how And the truth is Is that you or I may not know the heart truly of the prodigal. But what we do know is that we have just been given access into a rich glimpse of the heart of God. That God is a God who watches and waits, that he is a God who excels at redemption. He is a God who shows up in the form of physical hunger that leads to a spiritual reunion for this prodigal son, or in a quick line on an email, That encourages a prodigal boy To read his Bible and come back We can take hope Rest and joy In the God who demonstrates His own love for us That while we were yet sinners In the act of sinning In the process of sinning That he demonstrates his own love for us By dying for our sins I just tell you personally that I don't know how it is for other pastors But for me God's grace is overwhelming. It is solely God's grace that I'm able to get up week after week instead of crumble and suffer under the defeat of feeling inadequate and unqualified, but instead rest in the arms of Jesus in His grace, knowing that His grace is sufficient, that He will speak, and hopefully these mornings not me. Be encouraged. God is a Redeemer. God loves your prodigals more than you do. He has more access to their heart than you do. He sees more than you do. He knows their steps and he's seeking them. As for the outcome of their walks, for the final destination of their journey, all I can say is that rest and the faith and the hope found in Christ. Don't look for it in them. Look for it in Christ. You will not find any hope, any rest, any peace anywhere else. Surely, nothing else can satisfy, nor is worth hoping in, except for Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, we all have a lot of prodigal family members. But Father, we know that you have the most prodigal family members, because all of us have been prodigals. You haven't worried and waited over one, but many. Father, can we release our prodigal family members to you this day? Can we hand them over to you, trusting that you can deal with it better than we can? Many of us have to do that daily. But Father, this is what you promise us in this parable, that you are watching and waiting. That you have nothing but grace and forgiveness to offer and redemption to offer. Father, can we take hope to know that you are watching and waiting more than we are. We thank you for this. We thank you for watching and waiting for us. For embracing us when we came home. We thank you for giving us new robes. Giving us authority. Giving us adoption as sons and daughters of God. We pray for that day. But we know that you are alongside us, watching and waiting for that day as well. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.